One of our favorite stories from the Pali Canon is the story of the Venerable Badia. Uh, before Venerable Badia was Venerable Badia, he was King Badia. At the time of the Buddha, a lot of the kings and princes and became monks and the, the queens and the princesses became uh, nuns. Don't really see that happening much these days, but so there's the story that uh, the former king, Venerable Badia, was, uh, was sitting under a tree meditating, and uh, uh, some of the other monks were walking by and heard that Badia was meditating, but he was saying something, and they realized what he was saying was, what bliss, what bliss. And so the monks uh, thought he must be thinking about his kingdom. He must be thinking about all the wonderful sense pleasures that he enjoyed as a king. And he's just like we often do, you know, in some kind of a thought world and uh, thinking about the past and relishing those thoughts. Uh, so they ratted on him, basically. They went to the Buddha and they said, you know, Badia is sitting there under a tree and he keeps going, what bliss, what bliss. He must be thinking about when he was a king. You better talk to him. Yeah. Uh, that happens sometimes here. People come in to see me and they say, you know that yogi over there, you know. So, uh, so, so the Buddha uh, spoke with a venerable Badia. And he said, is it true that, you know, when you're, when you're you know, in your daily abiding, meditating, you keep saying, what bliss, what bliss? And Badia said, yeah, it is true. Uh, and, and the Buddha said, well, why is that? And, and Badiya said, well, it's such bliss to be free of the household life. It's such bliss to be free of the burdens of my kingdom and all that was attendant to that and all the responsibilities and all the things that I had to worry about. It's such bliss to be free of those burdens. A few years ago, we were uh, on retreat. Uh, it must have been a garrison, one of the uh, longer retreats like this retreat. And it was about this point in the retreat where the yogis were really just like on this retreat having some beautiful experiences of, of, of jhana and bliss. And one uh, 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 yogi came in for an interview with me uh, and sat down across from me and he just had this grin on his face. You know, I mean, it was just like I mean, this guy would smile, but this was just like, I mean, the widest, brightest smile I had seen in, in some time. Uh, it's what we call in, in Dharma uh, parlance, a shit-eating grin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what the Pali is for that. And, uh, and you know, in my teacherly way, I kind of looked at him and I said, what's going on? And he said, what bliss, what bliss. So when we come to a place like this, when we take this time for seclusion, uh, we get a sense of what it's like to be free of the burdens of the, what we call the householder life, to be free for a while of the burdens of our jobs, our relationships and our apartments, our material things to be free of those responsibilities that are attendant to maintaining the kingdom. Because, you know, we all have our own little kingdoms, right? 
you know, and a lot goes into maintaining those kingdoms on a daily basis. And here we're letting go of those burdens for this, this time. Such a precious time as I've been talking about and I've experienced so deeply uh, to, 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 you know, to, uh, you know, we'll go back to our kingdoms and queendoms, uh, but to really have a sense of what it's like to experience that bliss and what it's like to give up uh, that burden and what it's like to uh, know simplicity. Such a precious opportunity that we have here to do that. This time that we have to uh, let go of those burdens of the householder life, uh, our kingdoms, maintaining our status, our position in the kingdom, our roles. You know, there's a lot of burden in that. So these things of the world, if it's our jobs, our relationships, our apartments, our material things, uh, if it's our status, if it's our position, our roles, uh, uh, you know, they, by their nature, become a burden on the mind, become a burden on the mind. Uh, the mind, because we've created these kingdoms and these roles, uh, uh, becomes preoccupied with these things, becomes preoccupied with these things. The mind doesn't have much choice but to attend to these things. number of years ago now, uh, pretty much for the first time in my adult life, uh, I gave up my car. I had always had a car, you know, and, uh, and I remember, you know, and at first it was like, how can I give up a car? An American male without a car, you know? Yeah, it just doesn't fit. Uh, so I, you know, and, and I, was a little, I was a little nervous about it. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd had a practice at that time. Uh, it was probably a good, close to 10 years into my practice. Actually, this was probably late 90s when I gave up my car. I think it was 98. And uh, I remember, like, returning my car and, you know, walking back to my apartment in Stuyvesant Town. And it was just that feeling of, ah, what bliss, what bliss to be able to let go of the burden of this car, you know, and all that went with it, you know, having to maintain it, having to put gas in it, having to park it, having to fix it when it got broken, all that went into that. Forget about, and you know, not to mention, not forget about it, not to mention all the other burdens that, you know, perhaps I wasn't as aware of at that time as I am now, that, uh, that a car uh, brings upon us in our environment. Uh, but it was, I just felt that. It was like such a, such a letting go. You know, it was such a relief to let go of that car. It's one of the, the, the beauties of being able to live in a place like New York, right? Or Berlin, you know, where you don't need a car. You don't need a car. I mean, for me, that's really, uh, that's, 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 one of the things that I really consider when I think about you know, where I want to live and why I, want, I like living in New York. I don't have that burden. I don't have to be preoccupied. It's one less burden that, for me to be preoccupied with. So these burdens of the world uh, that Badia gave up, Venerable Badia gave up, uh, by their nature take us away from the body. 
they take us away from the body because by, to some extent, we have to think about these things. Just like I had to think about the car. Where am I going to get gas? How am I going to fix it? Where am I going to park it? When we are weighed down by these burdens of the world, uh, the tendency in the mind is to think about these things, to go into thought worlds. The mind goes out of what the Buddha called its proper range its proper range. He said the proper range of the body, of the mind, is the body. We want to keep the mind in the body. Perhaps our most favorite story from the canon is the story of the hawk and the quail, right? You know, where there's a quail that lives in a field of clumped up dirt. And uh, it lives in that field because that's where it's safe from predators, like the hawk. One day the quail says, you know, I'm going to wander outside of my proper range. I'm going to wander outside of the field of clumped up dirt. And sure enough, of course, the hawk swoops down and grabs the quail. And the quail says to the hawk, this is a, a myth, you know, like a story. It's not real. Quails don't really talk. But, you know, and the, so the quail says to the hawk, ah, drat, you know, I shouldn't have wandered outside the field of clumped up dirt. You never would have got me. You know, and the hawk says, ah, I would have got you anyway. And I'm going to show you, and swoops down and redeposits the quail in the field of clumped up dirt, circles around a few times, and swoops down to re-obtain the quail. And the quail, of course, hides behind the clumped up dirt, and the hawk smashes into the dirt and dies. You know, and the Buddha says, the moral of the story is don't wander outside your proper territory. The proper territory for the Dharma student, for the monk, is the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishments of mindfulness, beginning with mindfulness of the body. You know, if you can maintain yourself in your proper territory, you'll be safe from predators. You know, you'll, like, you'll be safe from the dangers of the mind. So these burdens of the world take us from the body and in turn, they take us from the heart. Because you know, when we're out of the body, we're away from the heart. One of the axioms, the laws of our practice that I learned right from the beginning was too much activity at the sense doors is an obstacle to mindfulness. And in part, I didn't quite know what that meant because what it means, of course, is first and foremost, too much activity at the sense doors is an obstacle to mindfulness of the body because mindfulness always begins with mindfulness of the body. So if there's too much going on at the sense doors, we're not able to maintain ourselves in the proper range in the body. So the venerable Badiya uh, came to see the great benefits of simplicity, of simplicity here uh, we have a chance to understand those benefits, the benefits of simplicity. We may think that uh, a life of, uh, that is, is consumed with a lot of things, a lot of material things and possessions, uh, is, is the most beneficial or provides us with a greater happiness. But when we start to experience more simplicity, we start to see, well, we start to kind of question that. You know, maybe this is a, a, a greater happiness. So we're asked to pay attention to these things. And in the Dharma talks, we try to point you 
in the direction of things to pay attention to, in addition to cultivating concentration. The concentration in the retreat, you know, and we're also learning to, how to develop concentration, but the concentration on the retreat enables us to see things, just like it does in life. You know, the concentration enables us to develop understanding. Thoreau, of course, uh, spoke often about simplicity. We could just take a little field trip down the Mass Pike to Walden Pond. Thoreau and Walden said, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, it always, it always gets me, because you know, he wrote this like in 1850. You know? Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, and not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen, and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. In the midst of this chopping sea of civilized life, such are the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand and one items to be allowed for that a man has to live if he would not founder and go to the bottom and not make his court at all by dead reckoning and be. And, mu and he must be a great calculator indeed who succeeds. You gotta be a hell of a calculator with all the stuff, you know, that we have to kind of try to account for. Simplify, simplify, simplify. So in our culture, so much activity, and so much activity at the sense doors, at the sense doors, and the result of that is agitation, agitation at the sense doors. You know, we seek to quell the agitation at the sense doors with more activity at the sense doors. You know, that's the irony, and uh, that's what our lack of understanding brings us to. And technology is, is one of the great examples of that. It's the greatest example of that. How we try to, uh, uh, to uh, have less agitation in our lives through this technology, and it causes more agitation, right? I mean, that's something I think we all kind of know. This is something uh, that McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, who wrote about technology, and you know, he wrote about this in the 60s, in large part, he was talking about things like tele radio and television. Uh, he said that all technologies are alternative central nervous systems. You know, and what he, the way he described that is our central nervous system is agitated because of all the activity at the sense door. So what we do is we try to create an alternative central nervous system. You know, and that's the television in his time or the radio. And think of all the technologies we have now that serve to create uh, alternative central nervous systems. Uh, he actually called those technologies self-amputations. Self-amputations. And of course, the result is they cause more agitation, right? The TV caused a certain degree of agitation. You know, Thoreau's day, they didn't sit around you know, watching the Milton Berle show, you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I always say in my day, growing up, a few of few of you can remember that when we only had a few channels, channel two, channel four, channel five. There were so few, I could count them on my thumbnail, you know. Now you need to, see, this is exactly what Thoreau was talking about. You know, there was channel two, channel four, channel five, channel seven, nine, 11, uh, PIX, and 13. And who watched 13, you know? 
that was it. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, I always tell that story. I haven't told it in a while. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, uh, I ordered cable TV. You know, I think it was one of those typical things. I shouldn't even say this. You know, when I was on a retreat, you know, and some Dharma teacher like me gave a talk like this, and I went home and canceled my cable service, you know. And then three weeks later, I was like jonesing for television. So, you know, I called up the cable company, and, you know, we got a new package. It's great. The guy came. He installed it. I was a little embarrassed because he had come a couple of weeks before to uninstall it. But, uh, uh, you know, and I had like, you know, 152 channels or whatever. You know, and I, got, I started flipping around, and it was actually, they didn't have the soccer channel that I wanted, and they didn't have, like, you know, some sports thing. And then they were, and I was like, I got on the phone, and I was like, I read. This isn't enough channels. I need more channels. I said, don't worry, we can get you more channels. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. So these technologies, you know, the, the TV caused a certain amount of agitation, right? Particularly in my house, you know, if you if you watch too much TV, uh, you know, we were only allowed to watch a little bit of TV. You know? I mean, TV was kind of like a big thing in those days, right? Uh, you know, that caused a little bit of agitation. Just think how much agitation the computer causes. You know, it's supposed to alleviate agitation, but it's just the opposite. And then you've got the phone. So these technologies, these self-amputations, take us further and further away from the body. You know, not too long ago, you know, you could actually go for a walk and just be in the body. Now it's really hard to go for a walk and not have the phone, right? Or the earplugs. You know, I've talked on this retreat a lot about going for a walk. You know, going for a walk. You know, and again, it's one of those things, you live in New York or Berlin or some places, you know, we walk. A lot of places people don't walk at all. They just get in the car. What bliss to give up that car and actually be able to walk without the phone. Here, so beneficial. So, so it's, you know, the simplicity of a walk is something in and of itself that we can find here. You know, plus being in nature brightens the mind. So conducive to practice. So conducive to practice. Simplify, simplify. Thoreau said, I, I, a little bit of a paraphrase, uh, I never really, I never read anything that was really worth reading in a newspaper. Imagine if he had the internet. Cable TV, cable TV. So in our breath meditation practice, we're mindful of the breath. Usually the mind is caught up in the experience of the senses and is going out, 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 out. The term the Buddha used is effluence. The mind is flowing out, 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 out. What we're doing is training the mind to come in, to come in to the breath, right? To come in to the breath. I talked the other night about how gradually, if we make that breath nice and easeful, and that easeful abiding in the body nice and easeful and pleasurable, the mind will gradually incline in, incline in. We're creating this abide, uh, abiding that's very pleasant, so the mind will incline in. So in practicing mindfulness of breathing, uh, we put the mind on the body. We keep the mind in its proper range, in its proper range. 
that's actually stage one of, and it's in, it's in the suttas, it's in the sutta of uh, Satipatthana, where the Buddha explains the different mindfulnesses. Stage one of mindfulness of breathing is to put the mind on the breath in the frame of reference. First foundation of mindfulness on the breath. Stage two, what the texts say is where the, the meditator is aware of origination and passing away. So we could think about that as impermanence. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting and instructive and useful to think about it the way that uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu teaches it. Uh, he says to really, what, what the Buddha is talking about, he says in terms of origination and passing away, is see that the breath is a process of, that's in constant change from breath to breath, from in-breath to out-breath, and it's changing, it's change uh, takes the shape of the varying fluctuations of ease and disease. So when we begin to understand origination and passing, the impermanent nature of the breath, it means that we see that the breath is composed, every breath is composed of a certain degree of ease and disease. So we're asked to see this and evaluate, this is evaluation. We're seeing origination and passing away when we see, oh, there's disease, there's ease in the breath. So we see that, and then we can make a choice about where to put our mind and what kind of breath to cultivate. So we choose ease, we cultivate ease. But if the, you know, if, if the, breath, if the breath wasn't subject to birth and death, if the breath wasn't uh, uh, subject to origination and passing, we wouldn't be able to do that, right? You know, what enables us to, to uh, cultivate an easeful breath is the breath's changing nature. You know? So because of that, we can uh, use the mind in a skillful way to cultivate an easeful breath. You know, if, like, if the mango was all the same, it wouldn't matter. You, you only could eat it, but no, parts of it are good, parts of it are bad. You can cut away the bad parts and eat the good parts. Origination and passing. Now in stage three, uh, as the breath gets really easeful, uh, we just start to come into harmony with the breath. So we don't have to think about the breath so much, right? This is something we've been talking about a lot, moving beyond thinking. So the breath starts to come into harmony. We develop this quality of internal assurance where we, we tune into the breath or we're in tune with the breath, right? The breath is in tune. The breath is in rhythm. You know, we found a rhythm. I mean, ultimately to get to that rhythm, ultimately to get to that rhythm, that's not something that the mind can quite figure out. You know, we have to know it internally. You know, that's that internal assurance or that deeper knowing that we've been talking about. The heart can bring ultimately the breath into harmony. So we let the breath be in rhythm and sort of like what that means is we get out of the way. You know, it's the heart. We, at that point, we're letting the heart, our innate wisdom, right? Evaluation. This stage of our practice is a function of discernment, which is ultimately a function of what the heart can do. Uh, we get out of the way and we let the heart bring the breath into that rhythm. And at that stage, we come to uh, this stage three in mindfulness, which is we're at the stage when we're mindful of the breath of just breathing, just breath. So there's no longer I am breathing or my breath it's just breathing, just breath. So, you know, on a retreat, you can really maybe start to get to that stage. You know? 
Tanisara Bhikkhu would say, be one with the breath, be one with the breath. I never really, you know, again, that's the way that he would present it, and I would never, I could never get it. You know, like, what does that mean? You know, because again, it's that, it's, we're at the stage now where what the breath is like uh, is not something, you know, it's, it's on a transcendent plane. You know, it's a function of our deeper wisdom. It's in tune. You can't describe that in the same way that you can't describe Wagner. You can't describe music. The breath is in rhythm. So it's hard to describe. I mean, one with the breath is okay, you know? Uh, so when we let go of I am breathing and there's just breath, we're at really a greater ease or even, you know, if we can let go of I am breathing completely, it's then that we're at the stage, there's no more dissonance there. Because, you know, you can get the breath to feel really good, but if it's I am breathing and there's a sense of I'm breathing or uh, it's my breath, there's still that veil of ownership, you know, which creates a little bit of dissonance. Eventually, you need that at first because it's like, I got to sit down here and look at this sucker and put my mind there. That's kind of an act of will, putting the mind on the breath. But we're moving beyond that. Now, of course, what tends to happen is, right, this tends to happen, right? What happens? You get to that you know, all right, breath, oh, it feels okay, I'm, I'm there, oh, got there, okay. You know, maybe this, this is like time-lapse photography on the retreat, right? So like, I'm, I'm there, all right, it took me a couple, you know, I got there, all right, it's starting to get a little easeful, you know, day four of the retreat, time-lapse photography, you know, oh, it's just breath. Oh, you have that moment, you know, on the third sitting in the morning, and it's just breathing, and what happens? I nailed it! Great breath! You know, you lose it. Right? You lose it at that point. Just like that, right? Because you've taken back the ownership of it. So, you know, that's okay. You're excited. That's cool. Gradually, you know, you just learn to, you know, you just learn to, to chill and just let there be just breathing, right? I mean, the other thing that can happen at that level, so I, I just watch that. You know, it's like, you know, because, right? you know, first, first, you, first, first thing that happens with that is like you do that, right? Because everybody does it, right? And then it's like, shit, I did that, you know? And then you do it again, it's like, I keep doing it. Then it's like, all right, I'm gonna watch out for that movement of the mind of like, congratulations or whatever, or I lost it. That's another one. You feel two or three of those breaths, and then it's like, damn it, I lost you know? So you start watching that, you know? You start, so I'm like kind of really watching for that to arise, and when it arise, starts to arise, you know, I don't let it, I don't, I don't go into it. Uh, the other thing that happens as you start to get to that this level in practice is maybe it's a little fearful, right? Because you've dropped the quote-unquote self, right? So there's some fear or uncertainty. You're in new territory, essentially. So, uh, you know, and, and, and at first that fear can kind of be a hindrance, but it's the same thing, you know? Uh, I would feel fearful and, you know, and then I would lose it. So then I would just start to notice when the fear would arise, you know? And I got to the point in my practice when I would do retreats like this, you know, where uh, the fear would start to arise and I would see, you know, it's like Mara would start to walk in the room, you know, and I would just see Mara just coming in. It's like, hey, Mara, Dubin and saw me and he'd walk out, you know? So you get to that point. You know, at first Mara just runs down the stairs, like, gotcha, you know? But, you know, the way you, the way you dispel Mara is by seeing Mara. So you just start to become sensitive to Mara walking down the stairs and trying to foil your meditation so uh, 
we develop the breath, chest breath, and then we do the same thing with the body, right? In step three, we enlarge our mindfulness to the full body with the breath as a center point in the body. Uh, in stage one, we put the mind on the breath. In stage two, we see the origination and passing away of the body. The body is in this state of flux. Gosh, knows, right? You know, I mean, look at how the body has been in this state of flux. I mean, that's just the nature of the body. You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting, like people come in to the interviews, you know, and this is where I have to learn from my, 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 my beloved teacher, Michelle McDonald, they come into the interviews and they say, oh, it's great one day and then the next day and then the next day I feel the ease here, you know, and people are kind of disappointed, you know, and of course you're seeing origination and passing away. That's really great. That's, and, and that, that's sort of my, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm kind of thinking. You know, when you're saying that, I'm like thinking that's really great. You're seeing how the body is in this state of flux and change. You're seeing how there's ease and dis-ease in the body. Now you can start to cultivate the ease and get really good and skilled at that. This is what we're really working with here. I mean, you're seeing, I talked about this a few nights ago, you're seeing the body in a way that you may have never seen it before. So in stage two, we see the origination and passing away of the body and we cultivate the ease. Again, we cultivate uh, uh, we eat the good parts of the mango, and then in stage three, uh, the body starts to come into harmony, and uh, there's that quality of PT, and it's pleasurable, and we get to that place where it's just body, right? There's just body. We're moving away from my body, or I'm sitting. So one of the things that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow morning in the instructions, but and we've talked about it on the retreat before as well. Uh, and this is something that I've been uh, teaching more over the last year or two or three in terms of breath meditation practice. Uh, we want to gradually, you know, the, the first state, the first point really, you know, when we're at uh, the first parts of working with the body you know, we're the bathmen, right? We're, we're massaging the bath powder. We, you know, we're, 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 we're spreading the mindfulness throughout the body. And so it's an act of doing, right? It's proactive, as I think I said this morning. So we're involved in this very proactive uh, uh, endeavor, right? So there's the doer there. You know, this is where, you know, you gotta be the doer. You know, that's, you know, you, you're making that effort, you know? So you're, you know, that's skillful, that's a skillful, uh, representation of self. You know, you're making that effort to, to expand the awareness, but gradually you want to just, you know, and it's just a, sh a little bit of a shift where, uh, you know, you can just rest the mind so you're not doing so much. You know, once you've, you've gotten to the point where you've got that nice flow of energy throughout the body and it's pretty consistent, you know, we can come back to the one point uh, but the body, you know, it's really foreground and background. So the breath at one point, the body's there in the background, and we're not doing, you know. I mean, technically, you're, you're, you're stop, you stop doing at when you hit second jhana. That's pretty high level. You probably still have to do a little bit, but you're not doing so much at that point, you know. So the metaphor, you know, in the first, in the first part is the bath men massaging the body. The second jhana, uh, the second level is uh, uh, the, 
the, the quality in the body is like uh, the breath in the body. It's a spring at the bottom of a lake, filling a lake with fresh water. So you're not doing anything. There's the spring of the breath, and it's just filling the lake with fresh water, and you're just aware of that. So you see what's happening there? So the mind, and the mind really settles down into stillness. You know? And at that point, there can really be just breath, just body, just body, just body. So we want to kind of eventually get to that point, you know, where we can kind of let the bathman has done his job, just let there be that spring filling the lake with fresh water. Yeah, this is the big picture, right? Just body. This quality of simplicity. We want to know, I read the T.S. Eliot poem uh, the other night, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. It's like, oh, this breath, this body. You know, where we started, first thing we ever did. We breathed, right? Uh, probably went okay. After that, we started screwing it up, you know? We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the breath for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for. A beautiful conversation with somebody in one of the interviews. And, you know, and we were talking about these qualities of awareness and jhana and, and cessation and peace. And you know, they're there. They're just not looked for. Not known because not looked for. So our practice is to look for, you know, to look for. Not known because not looked for, but heard half, but they're subtle, right? It's very subtle. But heard, you know, that's very subtle, right? It's very subtle, just body. It's very subtle, you know. And then, of course, that subtlety can be infringed upon by, oh, I'm doing such a good job. Not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. You know, and costing not less than everything means you give up ownership. You're giving up ownership of breath and body at that point, costing not less than everything. So no simplicity. Know this quality of simplicity. Just breath, just body, this quality of stillness. These are things we want to get to know because these are the places where we want to go. Oh, the places you'll go. You know, the places we've gone before are places of agitation and disease and dukkha. These are the places we want to go to. On the, on the mundane level, we want to go to places where there's seclusion and simplicity. Internally, we want to go to simplicity, stillness. So we, we have to know where we're going. I had another, I don't know if it was that same interview, but you know, you got to know where you're going. I think that was a different one. Beautiful talks with people. You know, you got to know where you're going. This is where we're going. How are you going to get there if you don't know where you're going? This is where we're going, simplicity, stillness. Just breath, just body, just listening, just listening. Right? That's why Tanisar Bhikkhu says, just stay with the breath and just listen. Keeps you centered and grounded. That's the, that's the door to the cage, right? 
you know? It keeps you grounded so there can be just listening. If you, if, you know, we typically we listen and it's not just listening. What is he saying? He said this last night. Is he going to say this again tomorrow? Ba, ba, ba. He said it three years ago. I think it's the same Dharma talk. Does anyone know it? You know? What do I have in the fridge back home? You know, what am I going to do? You know, he said, get rid of my car, the son of a bitch. I just got, I just got a new Lexus. You know? You, know? you know, it's like the breath keeps you here. This is the thing. The breath keeps you here. People say, how can I feel the breath and listen to the Dharma talk? You ain't listening to the Dharma talk. You know, I'm talking metaphorically here. You know, the breath enables you to stay in the present moment so there can be just listening. Just listening. Just sitting here. Just being here. Just being with things as they are. Breath, body. You know, and really it's the knowing of that that's free. It's the knowing of that that we seek. This quality of awareness. This knowing. There's knowing right now, right? Knowing. It's free. It's, it's without clinging. The Buddha said, normally the mind is grasping, just as I described, probably just as well as the Buddha did, uh, you know, the mind is grasping at sense experience. You know, he, in the fire sermon, he said, you know, the ears are on fire. I just gave an example of the ears being on fire, right? The mind is on fire. The nose is on fire. The mouth is on fire. Fire, you know, burning with the fires of aversion and desire, liking and disliking, wanting and not wanting, ownership, seeking ownership, my ears, my sounds, my senses. So in the practice, we seek to simply be with things. You know, and one of the way, you know, the, the word nibbana means the putting out of the fire. The putting, I mean, it's another way of the definition, the putting out of the fire. Putting out the fire of aversion of my my ears and my sounds and I'm hearing. And it's just hearing, just tasting, just smelling. We're just with our experience the way that it is. There's no grasping, liking or disliking, no ownership. When we're with things as they are, there's no dukkha. There's no clinging, no holding on. There's no dukkha. The heart isn't blocked. The heart isn't blocked. The heart can shine. There's love. There's compassion. There's joy. There's appreciation. There's generosity. There's kindness. There's virtue. That's what's there. One of the most beloved suttas uh, with the Thai forest monks is the Bahia Sutta. It's a little different than the Bahia Sutta. I don't think Bahia was, uh, was ever a king. Actually, his nickname was Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So you know, he was a guy who, like, you know, he was a Brahmin who wore a bark cloth. Uh, and uh, you know, Bahia was a very diligent spiritual seeker, and you know, found out that the Buddha was giving, you know, uh, you know, this, these teachings, these of awakening. You know, went to the Buddha and said, "Can you can you give me the teachings of awakening?" And the Buddha said, eh, "Maybe sometime. Come back later." You know. And he came back again. He said, can you give me these things? He said, eh, maybe again, you know, right now I'm busy. And I never do this to you guys, right? You know? and, and then he came back a third time, and the Buddha said, oh, you've showed me that you really have an interest. And you showed, and you know, and I, and I look for that in a student, you know, somebody who really has an interest, you know? Uh, he said, all right, I'm going to give you the te- a teaching of awakening. Uh, and this was the teaching that he gave to Bahia. 
He said, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. Tennyson Bhikkhu translates dukkha as stress. This, just this, is the end of stress. When only for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, just seeing, not I'm seeing. Just seeing, just hearing, just sensing, just cognizing. Buddha describes this awakened state to Bahia and says, practice like this. So this is a practice that we we can practice. We can practice and know this simplicity. Just hearing, just seeing. Last night we talked about the famous teaching of the flower. Just seeing. Not I'm seeing. Just seeing. Just seeing. It's a little hard, you know, when you kind of like the teacher says, just see, right? You know? And last night we really, I think, you know, I was talking to somebody, we, we, there was sort of that moment where I think we all just connected and dropped into it, but it was spontaneous. You know, it was very spontaneous. I hadn't, it wasn't written there. Now it's a little bit more, this, I'm making this a teaching, you see that? Uh, you know, it's a little bit more forced, right? It's like, I got to do it now. So then you lose it, right? You lose it. Yeah. You know, it's being, you know, it's being ready and prepared and alert and being very still, you know, and when those moments arise, there can be just seeing. But when the teacher says do it, then it's like, now it's like, I gotta do it, and maybe I gotta show the teacher that I'm the enlightened, I'm enlightened here, you know, whatever it is, or I've got a job or a task. So it's not, I like the flower, or I don't like the flower, it's just seeing, it's just seeing. There's just awareness. Really, what really what's awakened is the awareness of the seeing of, of this. You know, it's the awareness, right? It's the quality of awareness. Can you just touch into that? The quality of awareness that sees. This just this is the end of stress. This is cessation. This is cessation. This is the third noble truth. The dirt. The duty of the third noble truth is to realize cessation. This is your duty as Dharma students to realize cessation now on this retreat, not 10 years from now. I'll get to cessation. You know, that's, that's got to be like the graduate school. You know, it's like I got you know, to really plow the earth before I can, you know, reap the rewards, you know, for the rest of my life. You know, no, now you have to realize cessation. This is your duty, the Buddha said. This is your duty to realize cessation. Know these moments. I mean, they're moments, right? They're moments. The conditions have to be just right, and you have to be turned in just the right direction. But the retreat is a, is a great time for this, to practice realizing cessation, going for walks, 
is a great opportunity to do that. Oftentimes it doesn't, you don't know when it's going to happen. Natan Jeff equates it with chaos theory. You don't know when those moments are going to arise. And what that means is you have to be very sensitive and very alert and prepared to realize cessation in those moments. But walks are good uh, because you know the body is at ease, hopefully in a walk, and the mind is bright if you're walking in nature. So learn to do this. Learn to know these moments of non-grasping, of just hearing, just sensing, just seeing. Know this quality of awareness, this quality of awareness. Practice like Bahia. Just before the pandemic, I was at Gaia House in England for a couple of weeks, and, you know, and this was a big part of my practice. You know, I sat a lot, I walked a lot, I, walked, I worked in the kitchen, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if anybody here has been to Gaia House, I don't know. Uh, but it's in the English countryside in Devon, you know, just sheep meadow, sheep fields, you know, just walking those roads, you know, and just practicing, just seeing, just hearing, just being with awareness itself. Just being with awareness and knowing that place of freedom. You know, and of course, and, 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 and making that note, this is cessation. This is cessation. This is cessation. You know, of course, you can't go do it the whole walk. You know, you can't do it the whole walk. I'm going to go be in, you know, I'm going to do, no, it's, it's, it's very subtle, right? You know, you know, known in those, you know, half heard, half heard between two waves of the sea. I mean, T.S. Eliot describes it perfectly. You know, but there's those moments, so you find those opportune moments. I mean, the conditions here are really good for that. There's seclusion, there's nature, and then, you know, the most important condition is that you're in your body, right? That you're in your body, and there's this quality of ease and that quality of stillness. When you're in the body, then you're right at the door of the cage, right? I talked about that, you know, metaphor the other night. So when the door swings open, you can fly. You can know those moments of cessation. You have to be inclined to knowing them. You have to be inclined to knowing them. As that yogi said, not known because not looked for. You know, you've got to look for them, but you can't be staring, you know? So practice, just seeing, just hearing. Now, the biggest mistake, now I'm going to tell you what the biggest mistake is. You know, and I think sometimes the best way to, you know, this is the way we often teach, you know, is to understand what cessation isn't, to understand what true happiness isn't, to understand what the goal isn't. The biggest mistake that we make when we begin to practice in this way, just hearing, just seeing, just sensing, is that thinking, awakening, true happiness is found in the sense object. Okay, in having a heightened experience of the sense object. Happiness is not found in having a vivid experience of the sense object a heightened experience. It's not found in the sunset in and of itself, yet that beautiful sunset. It's not found in the feeling of the soft breeze. Happiness isn't found in the warm sun this afternoon on the face. You know, that's the mistake that we make. I mean, that's pleasurable. That's sukha, but it's not cessation. It's not true happiness. It's not found in the, the smell of the forsythia. My grandmother had a forsythia bush on the side of the house. You know, I have just these beautiful memories of a kid walking along the side of the house. I 
can almost smell it today, right? You know? It's that beautiful forsythia. Yeah, it's like, I wonder if it's still there. You know? It's like, you know, one thing, I never had a house, you know? So I, I always thought if I had a house, I'd plant a nice forsythia bush. See, that's why, that's why you don't find happiness in those things, because that's what the mind does, right? It clings. See how easily my mind just clung? Now, of course, I wrote that out, but, you know, uh, but that's what the mind does, right? That's what the mind does, you know? And, you know, that forsythia bush probably isn't, gone, isn't around anymore. And that beautiful, warm sun on the face, God knows, at Powell House in April, might not be there tomorrow. You can't depend on that. It's not a reliable happiness. It's not a true happiness. There's some happiness in there, in the sukha, in the pleasure of those experiences, but that's not what we're talking about when we see when we say, see cessation in seeing, hearing, taste, just hearing, just seeing, just tasting, what the teaching that Buddha, the Buddha gave, Bahia, these experiences in and of themselves are not where we find true happiness, awakening, cessation. They conduce to clinging. They're impermanent. They're impermanent. They're subject to birth and death. We're looking for, in looking for cessation, we're looking for that which transcends birth and death. We're looking for the deathless. We're looking for the deathless. This is what we want to know. This is what you want to know tomorrow, tonight, right now, in this moment, as you perform the duty of knowing cessation. Now, where we can come to know in practicing this way, this quality of the deathless uh, is in coming to understand in a felt way in the heart, the quality of awareness. So it's not this moment right now in terms of what's going on in the room, but it's our quality of, our quality of awareness, the quality of awareness. Awareness itself. Cessation is found in awareness. It's a little bit of a hard concept to understand, you know? The only way, because again, you can't understand it in words, right? So uh, there's the experience here of the 13 yogis in the room, uh, which is a beautiful experience, you know, and there could be just seeing these yogis, but cessation is found in the awareness of this experience. So begin to know this quality of awareness, of awareness, which is free. There's no clinging in awareness. There's no coming and going. There's no birth or death. That quality of awareness is ever-present. It's a kaliko. It's always there. Sadly, all these yogis won't always be here. But awareness is always there, and it's free. Not in terms of it doesn't cost anything. It's free from holding on. It's free from holding on. In his uh, final comments in the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha describes this quality of awareness. It's one of the very few times in the suttas where he describes cessation. He says, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. So, you know, it's, it's transcending the material, the conditioned experiences that are made of the elements, which is all sankara, conditioned things. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine, the sun is invisible. There the moon doesn't appear, there darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin through sagacity, has realized this for himself, 
then free from form, forms, all these forms, and formless, from bliss and pain, liking and disliking, he is freed. So awareness is free, it's deathless. So there's this experience of being here right now. There's the awareness of this experience. This quality of awareness is free. It's deathless. Again, it's one of those things that's hard to describe uh, in conventional terms. The only way to truly understand is to see it for yourself. So that's your duty. You know, that's your duty. That's why the Buddha didn't describe it so often. That's one place where he did describe it. Here, the conditions are good to practice with this, to incline to knowing what's deathless, what doesn't die to incline to knowing awareness itself, to practice the way Bahia practiced. And again, we don't know when you know, there's going to be that quote-unquote teachable moment when you can incline and, and touch into that quality of cessation, awareness itself. It's hard to say when that's going to happen. So you just, and oftentimes it's in very, mon- I mean, nature, going for walks is a good place, but oftentimes it's in very mundane things. The yogi and I, when we were having this conversation, brought this up and actually brought up one of the suttas that, in which the Buddha uh, illustrates this, the sutta uh, where he talks about Sista uh, Patarika. You know, Sista Patarika was extremely diligent, uh, but, you know, uh, you know, and was really working hard on her Dharma practice, on her meditation, and it's just like, it was not getting anywhere, you know? And she was really getting frustrated with her practice, you know? And she was like, all these people that I know, you know, they have all these jobs, and, you know, and they're, you know, they're great, they're successful in the world, and here I am meditating, and, you know, it's like nothing's happening. And then she describes um, the, when she, when, uh, a moment when she touched into cessation, Washing my feet, I notice the water. So washing your feet. So you might, it might happen in the shower. Washing my feet, I notice the water. And watching it flow from high to low, my heart was composed like a fine thoroughbred steed. Just washing, just watching, just watching. Then taking a lamp, I entered the hut, checked the bedding, sat down on the bed. And taking a pen, I pulled out the wick, like the flames unbinding, was the liberation of awareness. The liberation of awareness. Awareness is liberated. So this is our practice, our duty to know cessation, to know this quality of an awareness that's free. And what enables us to do that, most importantly, is to be in the body with ease and stillness at the door of the cage. It's a felt sense, right? It's a felt sense. It's not intellectual. Something you're going to know in the body and in the heart. You know it in the heart. You can feel it and know it in the heart, in the body. So uh, know what cessation is. Know cessation. The more we know cessation, the more we know our potential to know it, the more we know that this is a choice that we have, 
the more we choose to abandon holding on, to abandon holding on, to abandon, I like that sunset. Ah, my grandmother's forsythia, you know? We learn to abandon that kind of holding on, to be with things as they are, and to be able to rest in the peace and stillness and happiness that's always there in any moment. We can end right there. <laughs>